Welcome to Ike Land, the podcast where I, Thomas Robertson, he, him, take you on a journey through the world of British conspiracy theorist David Ike, a self-confessed tireless campaigner for truth. Tread carefully and follow me. In Ikeland, they lurk in every shadow and behind every corner. The lizard men who rule the world need human blood to maintain their human disguises, so for your own safety, keep your hands and feet inside the podcast. Welcome back everyone, I hope everyone has had a good week. I'm good, thank you for asking. Just picked up a copy of Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon and the Conspiracy that Reshaped the World by Will Soma. Looking forward to diving into that over the weekend, should be a good read. This is the second part of our look at David Icke's interview with Baptiste de Pepe. I like putting a little accent on that. Let's jump back in where we left off. Mr. Icke has some things to tell us about the virtual nature of our reality, which he keeps referring to as a simulation, but I think he's mixing his metaphors. He's also got some updates for any physics textbooks you have laying around the house, so have your liquid paper and a pen at the ready. The, the human body has been created as the vehicle that interacts with the simulation. Um, just after the turn of the millennium, I just got this overwhelming feeling, intuitively you might call it, that we live in a simulation and the limit of the simulation at this level is the speed of light. Um, and um, I, I wrote about this and, and in those days I could only find one other person who was talking about this reality being a possible simulation. And that was a guy called uh, Nick Bostrom at Oxford University who sees the simulation in a different way to me, but he, he was talking about that. And what I've seen since the turn of the millennium to now is more and more mainstream scientists coming out and saying it does look like this is a simulation because if you take the simulation hypothesis, it does explain a, an enormous number of what are otherwise mysteries and unexplainable. Um, and in 2021, in uh, the spring of 2021, an article appeared in the um, uh, Scientific American, mainstream science magazine in America, by an academic who said that he concluded that the, uh, our reality is a simulation and that the limit of the simulation at this level, I would say, um, is the speed of light. Yeah. And what he did was um, connect the speed of light to processing speed. As he pointed out, you know, when you um, are writing the rules of uh, a, a virtual reality game, by the way, the rules of this virtual reality is what we call the laws of physics. Um, and the reason they can be overridden is because they only operate at one level. Yes. Uh, and this is when people have what they call near-death experiences. They talk about a completely different realm with a completely different physics um and what um what what he was saying is you you can write the rules of your virtual reality game which is still going to be limited by the processing speed you're dealing with and he would liken the speed of light to the processing speed i've been saying since well you know for 25 years must be the speed of light is um is a myth uh, in terms of it being the fastest speed possible it's pedestrian. ike misunderstands the simulation hypothesis, or at the very least, he's misusing it to give his own point some credibility. Ike speaks of it as if the people experiencing the simulation also exist outside of it, or are able to leave, like in the film The Matrix. In the simulation hypothesis, as proposed by Nick Bostrom, the people in the simulation are being simulated as a part of the simulation. The simulation is run by humans with advanced computational resources, sometime in the distant future, 
to study their ancestors, who would be us. This may seem like a trivial distinction, but it isn't trivial when Ike is using an idea or information he is incorrect about as evidence in support of his own theories. Ike's millennial epiphany about the simulation isn't nearly as profound as he makes it sound here either, when you remember that The Matrix came out in 1999, to widespread acclaim and massive wild popularity. The film was firmly a part of the zeitgeist, with imitators and parodies everywhere. It would be extremely difficult for Ike to avoid it in the early 2000s. Ike isn't claiming here that the idea that we are experiencing a false reality originated with him, so I won't bore you with a long list of religions and philosophers who have proposed the same thing. It's far from a new idea, however, going back thousands of years. For one example, in the 1st century AD, Gnostic groups believed that the physical universe in which we live is an imperfect lower plane of existence made by an imperfect lesser god who is ignorant of his own origin as a part of the greater perfect godhead. Human beings carry a divine spark which must escape the physical world and reunite with the godhead, which is the really real reality, by achieving gnosis, knowledge of their true divine origin. I've greatly simplified an explanation of Gnosticism here for the sake of brevity, and it should go without saying that all of the Gnostic groups have their own interpretations and differences. Judging by his comments earlier about the cult's plan to prevent us from reaching a greater or higher consciousness, Ike's idea of the simulation seems to be closer to the ideas of a false reality as proposed by groups such as the Gnostics than the ideas proposed by Nick Bostrom in his thought experiment. The article from Scientific American, which Ike cites, is an opinion piece called Confirmed! We Live in a Simulation! Which was honestly a pretty interesting read. I really did. Uh, I really enjoyed reading that one. The author Fawad Khan, there's no way I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Fawad Khan does propose that the speed of light is the processing speed of the universe, as Ike states. Ike, uh, Khan also proposes an explanation for consciousness, which Ike fails to mention. The only reason I mention it is that it dovetails so neatly into the master plan of the cult that I can't help but feel what a missed opportunity for Ike it was not to mention it. Ike doesn't reveal the master plan of the cult until the end of the interview, so I won't spoil the surprise. Instead, I'll just present Khan's hypothesis regarding the origins and purpose of human consciousness without comment. Khan proposes that human consciousness is the data from the simulation, which is of interest to whoever is responsible for the simulation. Consciousness is experience, produced by us but not for us, but rather for the benefit of the simulators. Sit with that thought, let it stew, let it digest. It's going to make I kick himself later. The other thing about the article worth mentioning is the praise it lavishes on Elon Musk as an intellectual and as a champion of the simulation hypothesis. This is funny and uh, a little bit ironic because Ike hates Elon Musk and it's more or less the next thing he goes on about. Isn't it ironic that Elon Musk hijacked that name, Tesla? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, n nothing about Elon Musk um, is to be taken on face value. I mean, uh, you will see even the alternative media say that he's a co-founder of Tesla. He never was. Yes. Um, he it was founded before he got involved and he um, manipulated the founders out of the game. And part of that deal was that he would be able from then on to call himself a, a co-founder of Tesla, which he never was. I mean, his whole background is um, is full of uh, is full of deceit. 
Um, he gets enormous funding from, from, let's say, the government, quote unquote. I mean, billions. Um, so he must have very powerful friends, uh, Mr. Musk. Well, I mean, if, if you, you want to talk about Musk, I mean, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, first of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, his companies uh, survive and prosper from massive uh, government money input, in other words, from the people. Um, and when you look at this cult agenda, uh, his companies are advancing, uh, every company he's got is advancing an element of it. I've mentioned Neuralink. Um, he came out a few years ago and said, AI could be the end of humanity. Um, he also said, by the way, um, long after I did, by the way, that um, uh, there's a very good chance that this is a stimulation. I would say that from the level of the network that Musk comes from, he knows it's a simulation. Um, but then you have um, SpaceX, um, which is um, in the process of putting tens of thousands of low orbit satellites up to beam uh, Wi-Fi, 5G, 6G, 7G eventually, at the Earth to cover every inch of the Earth with what they call the cloud. This is very uh, uh, much connected to this whole um, AI takeover. Uh, and then you've got Tesla, which is um, promoting massively um, the electric car agenda. So the good news is 7G is coming. Bad news is, yeah, Musk is one of the baddies. Ike mentions in that clip right at the end there what is dubbed the electric car agenda. It's a rich vein for us to mine and we're going to have a lot of fun with that in just a few minutes. For now, though, let's let Ike finish his thoughts on Mr. Musk. Here you have Elon Musk. He's involved in that. He's involved in Neuralink, connecting uh, the brain to computers. They're supposed to be starting human trials soon. Um, and you, you have him uh, putting these satellites up, which is creating the cloud, which is going to allow the communication system to have this control system, uh, including autonomous vehicles. Um, and um, he's everywhere. Now, and, you know, my question is this. Um, people say, oh, well, Musk must um, be in favor of free speech because he's bought Twitter and he's put out these Twitter files that are showing that um, the deep state uh, in America, not least America, um, has been dictating what can appear on Twitter and who can appear on Twitter. Okay, so what does that tell you? What that confirms, because we knew all that anyway, but what it confirms is that the deep state controlled Twitter as it controls, indeed, created Google, which owns YouTube, and Facebook, which um, was also a cult creation. So what, what do they want? Uh, what was the game of controlling these companies? It was, obviously, to control what people saw and didn't see on these major platforms that most people in the world now seem to get their information from. So here's a question which no one's ever answered in the alternative media, good chunks of which have, have bought the Musk myth, because he's telling them what they want to hear. Um, why would you, when you now control Twitter and you're controlling exactly what you want, what, what can be said and what can't, why would you not only allow a alleged free speech absolutist in Elon Musk to buy Twitter, but you would actually take him to court to try to force it to uh, on him when he started uh, rolling back as of all the bots that were fake accounts. Um, it makes absolutely no sense. It certainly makes no sense when the other companies that he's fronting up are all advancing this cult agenda quite blatantly. 
So yeah. one of the things that I, I say to people is never judge something, unless your previous research shows you it's not true or shows you what's going on. Don't judge something just in the moment of whatever's happening now. Yes. Just sit back and see where it goes. And then you'll see why it makes no sense and what the agenda really is. Yes. And, you know, I, 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 I scan the alternative sites every day and more and more I'm seeing Elon Musk's picture and he's commented on this or that. Oh, I had the jab and I had a terrible, you know, uh, reaction and all that stuff. Well, why didn't you mention it at the time, mate? Right? Why now, suddenly? And there's something going on here. And I, I, would, I would urge the alternative media to just take a step back. And, and, and a number of people within it do have. And, and not just by what appears to be the situation. Because it makes no sense. Yeah, the, the mainstream media is working for you know something or someone. And they have their marching orders. Very strong Grandpa Simpson shaking his fist at clouds vibes there from Ike. Look, we all have an opinion on Musk. I'll be honest. I'm not a fan. That being said, I think the likelihood that he's pursuing any agenda other than profit is probably pretty crazy. He's probably not advancing the cult agenda. Probably. Anyway, you know what's really evil? Electric cars and public transport. Electric cars um, are not being introduced, indeed imposed, uh, to save the planet, um, what they want, again, I've been writing about this for a long time, is the population isolated in sectors where you can't really leave one sector. This is where the working from home and a lot of that stuff is kind of coming from. And so that's much that's a 15 minute city they want, right? Uh, yeah, I'm going to a protest in Oxford uh, <laughs> shortly, um, early February, um, because that's what they're proposing there for 2024, which is um, you will uh, be confined uh, to a 15-minute community where they say everything you need will be within 15 minutes walk or cycle ride, and you'll only be allowed to leave by car about 100 times a year, um, and you'll be fined every time you, you leave more often. I mean, this is uh, straight off the, uh, the script and the playbook of the World Economic Forum. Um, and so that, that's the idea, to break up people into sectors and and you know the 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 world they want to create i've been calling for a long time now the hunger game society after the movies and if you look at that uh, that movie trilogy you had the uh, capital where the elite lived in high-tech luxury and then you had the people the population in sectors that weren't allowed to interact with each other that were living in abject poverty and serving the interests of the of the elite that's the basically the, the format of where they uh, want to take the world I was really amused by Ike's electric vehicle agenda and his fear-mongering about the 15-minute city concept because the truth is so mundane that it makes his claims even more fantastical than they first appear. Let's look at the 15-minute city first. It's weird that Ike has seen The Hunger Games. I wonder what movies Ike likes. Anyway, the 15-minute city has captured the attention of the conspiracy-minded, so I'm not really too shocked that Ike has something to say about it. Long story short, the 15-minute city is an idea being explored by town planners to remedy our over-reliance on cars. The concept is simple. Neighbourhoods should be planned to allow residents access to grocery shops, parks, postal services, health services, social and hospitality services, as well as banking services, within a 15-minute walk or cycle from their homes. 
Former Chief Urban Planner for Vancouver, Brent Todarian, explained to the ABC News here in Australia, saying, There are so many public interest reasons to, do, to want to do this. It's kind of a no-brainer. Your carbon footprint is a lot lower, so it's a powerful climate change mitigation tool. It promotes urban health and thus promotes the actual reduction of public health costs. It promotes individual affordability and household affordability because you don't need to own the second car or maybe even the third car. As someone who hates traffic and is worried about climate change, this sounds pretty bloody good to me. To Ike, it's an urban hellscape ripped from the pages of Judge Dredd designed to divide and rule us. Oxford City Council are planning to install traffic filters on key roads which will monitor car usage and fine drivers up to £70 for travelling between neighbourhoods. These filters are cameras, not physical barriers, which will monitor license plates and issue fines but will only operate between the hours of 7am and 7pm Monday to Saturday. Exemptions will be provided for private vehicles operated by carers, drivers living with a disability, as well as business and emergency vehicles. Buses, taxis, scooters and pedestrians will all be able to travel through the filters for free. Additionally, Oxford residents will be able to apply for permits to travel through the filters for up to 100 days a year, and Oxfordshire residents can apply for permits to travel through the filters up to 25 times a year. Importantly, travel around Oxford via alternative routes will be allowed at any time. These filters will only be in operation on six streets in Oxford. The plan is to incentivise the use of public transport instead of private vehicles. Oxford City Council aimed to reduce traffic in the city centre where congested traffic is currently impacting the viability of public transport. No mention of teenagers battling to death for our entertainment, unfortunately. When you look into the details and you don't believe the scary narrative Ike is pushing, Oxford City Council's plan is sensible and honestly pretty mundane. Is it really any more exciting than hours restricting parking in parts of your city? Unfortunately, this hasn't stopped people sending death threats to Duncan Enright, Oxfordshire County Councillor and Cabinet Member for Travel and Development Strategy. Also, there's four Hunger Games movies, not three, so put that in your pipe and smoke it, Dave. Ike opposes the traffic filters as he sees them as a way for the few to control the many. Ike values individual freedom and believes that individual freedom should never be curtailed for the benefit of the majority. He is, of course, also deeply suspicious of anything that even looks like control and restriction of anything by the government or the cult. The right of motorists to drive without restriction, contributing to traffic and air pollution, versus the right of everyone in the community to cleaner air and less traffic has been the subject of discussion for decades. I'll read some excerpts here from chapter 10 of a book called It Doesn't Have to Be Like This an impassioned book about environmentalism and policies of the Green Party in the UK. It is not more roads we want, but fewer vehicles. I doubt, also, if people like Nicholas Ridley would ever see the sense of the Green approach. When he was Transport Secretary, he was against wheel clamps and even one-way streets because he said that they interfered with the democratic rights of motorists. The same, then, must apply in his view to zebra crossings, traffic policemen, school crossing wardens and traffic lights. Indeed, that appears to be the case. He wanted to remove 30% of London's traffic lights to increase the liberty of drivers. This was Mr Ridley's assessment of the traffic problem. The private motorist wants the chance to live a life that gives him a new dimension of freedom. Freedom to go where he wants, when he wants, 
and for as long as he wants. Try telling that to the rush hour motorists on the M25 or on any other road in and out of London and the other cities. Try telling that to the bank holiday drivers or to the people who live a life of hell and ill health alongside the roads that bring this freedom. About half the lung disease in the United States is caused by air pollution, and cases of cancer are 12% higher in traffic-congested cities than elsewhere. The densely populated UK must be as bad or worse. The US are now looking at air quality standards that can only be met by reduced traffic levels and improved public transport, along with more cycling and walking, the most non-polluting transport of all. We should not forget that far more people don't have cars than do. Mostly the less well-off, for obvious reasons. What about their freedom? They are free to be poisoned, to be imprisoned by cutbacks in public transport in favour of road building, to see their communities cut in two or replaced by urban motorways or interchanges, to live with the constant traffic jams, the fumes, the noise, the dangers for them and their children. What about the freedom of people not to see where the forests die from acid rain or the climate change with global warming? Such considerations do not go into the system's balance sheet. That's why we are up the creek. A full bus is a moving traffic jam, because if everyone on board was in a car, a jam there would be. If everyone on a full train travelled by car, there would be a major snarl-up. In London, buses are just 1% of the vehicles on the road, but carry 30% of people travelling by road. The uh, chapter also continues on with the topic of town planning, which I found particularly enlightening, so I'll continue on here. A child in the UK is twice as likely to die on the roads as a child in the Netherlands, and three times as likely as one in Sweden, because our traffic restraint policies are so poor or non-existent. The British Road Federation, or its members, fight every attempt to improve them. We must rebuild our urban communities which have been ravaged by our obsession with the motor vehicle, and the redevelopment that has made way for it. Moving most of our journeys from road to rail and other public transport is essential, but that's only part of it. What we really have to do is reduce the need for motorised transport. We must also stop putting houses in one area and work in another, so creating a sizeable journey twice a day for large numbers of people. We must integrate housing and work much more whenever we have the opportunity. We have to discourage the out-of-town shopping complexes and put shops where people are. Unless we turn back from the course charted by our governments, particularly since the war, we are heading for big trouble. Now, I apologise for quoting such large sections of It Doesn't Have to Be Like This, but I thought it was essential to include, as the author is none other than Mr. David Icke himself, <laughs> if you can believe it. Published in 1990, it's shocking to see how he's changed over the decades. It's especially shocking that a man once so concerned about the impact of climate change is now just regurgitating climate change misinformation. Case in point, I continues another 24 seconds before I have to pause and comment. The electric vehicle agenda is very different to what they're telling us. What they're saying is we're going to replace petrol and diesel vehicles with electric. Well, first of all, they're saying because electric... Um, saves us from the evil of carbon dioxide, which is actually the gas of life, without which we'd all be dead. Carbon dioxide, the gas of life. Besides being bizarre, this line provides some insight into the kinds of sources Ike is relying on for his ideas these days. When I was researching this episode of the pod, that phrase was 
bouncing around in my brain because when he said it, it just stuck out like a sore thumb. I was compelled to uh, look into it, even though originally I was going to dismiss it as a kind of a strange Ikeism. A quick search of the phrase will return results for Miracle Molecule, Carbon Dioxide, Gas of Life, a 37-page ebook authored by Paul Dreisen in 2014. The ebook is published by the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, a non-profit think tank based in Washington, D.C., and a part of the Cooler Heads Coalition, which rejects the scientific consensus on climate change, opposes the Kyoto Protocol, and has been known to promote falsehoods about climate change. Long story short, the ebook touts the supposed benefits of increased CO2 in the atmosphere for plant growth, especially crops, and how the increased CO2 provides protection via the greenhouse effect from the ravages of another ice age should uh, it occur due to a solar minimum. My review? It's silly. It is alarming that Ike is repeating these things, but we'll just have to tack that onto the list of alarming things Ike is repeating. I'll spare you further excerpts from the book, but uh, wouldn't you know it, Ike disagrees with his 1990 self again. In 1990, he passionately argued the case for the reduction of CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. In 2023, he doesn't really seem to give a shit. I'm all for people changing their mind, don't get me wrong. It's just, you know, usually people get wiser as they get older. Anyway, Ike continues. Sometimes you just think, can I burst your bubble or not? Because people say to you, I've got an electric car, I've gone green. And you say to them, well... Where do you think the electricity is coming from that you're putting in your bloody car? Coming overwhelmingly from fossil fuels, of course it is. Um, and the, the idea, when you look at the resources necessary, much of which is uncontrolled by China, for these batteries, etc., for these electric cars, you look at uh, the incredible environmental cost of getting rid of these batteries because they don't last that. They cost a fortune to replace as well. Um, there's no way in the world that electric cars are going to replace all the current petrol and diesel vehicles. Not going to happen. It's not possible. So, Ike is correct that electric vehicles still utilise power generated by fossil fuels. How alarming is it to hear that Ike is correct about something? I feel like an alarm should go off. However, his assertions that this is as bad for the environment as driving a petrol or diesel vehicle doesn't hold up. A paper published in the journal Nature Sustainability in 2020 entitled Net Emission Reductions from Electric Cars and Heat Pumps in 59 World Regions Over Time found that electric cars are better for the environment than petrol cars in 95% of the world. The paper reports the findings of a study by the universities of Exeter, Cambridge, and I will try to pronounce this as best I can, Nijmegen? Hmm... Not sure. Apologies to anyone working or studying there. Uh, they examined the emissions from electric vehicle production and power generation required to operate the electric vehicles and compared them to petrol vehicles. They found that the environmental impact of the electric vehicles depended largely on how the power to operate them was generated. But even in countries such as Poland, where coal-fired power stations provide most of their electricity, electric vehicles still produced an average of 30% fewer emissions than petrol vehicles. In countries which relied on more renewables and nuclear power for electricity generation, such as Sweden and France, electric vehicles produced 70% fewer emissions than petrol vehicles. 
So it's complicated and it depends on where you are in the world, but on average, electric vehicles produce fewer emissions than petrol vehicles. Interesting study. Unfortunately, I have to award Ike half a point for what he was saying about the batteries required for electric vehicles. Only half a point, though, as it's more complicated than Ike makes it sound. To quote from someone smarter than I, academic Stephen Cohen from the Columbia Climate School. Battery technology currently requires lithium and other rare earth metals, which must be mined. No one should pretend that these technologies are perfect. They're not. Reporting last year in the New York Times, Hiroko Tabuchi and Brad Plummer observed that, like many other batteries, the lithium-ion cells that power most electric vehicles rely on raw materials, like cobalt, lithium, and rare earth elements, that have been linked to grave environmental and human rights concerns. Cobalt has been especially problematic. Mining cobalt produces hazardous tailings and slags that can leach into the environment. And studies have found high exposure in nearby communities, especially among children, to cobalt and other metals. Extracting the metal from their ores also requires a process called smelting, which can emit rather, sulfur oxide and other harmful air pollution. We will see progress as we make the problem less bad, but we will not solve the problem. The argument that electric vehicles pollute too much is not persuasive. They pollute less than vehicles powered by the internal combustion engine. That is the only comparison that matters. Moreover, as the technology develops, it will improve. Tesla is already building the capacity to recycle batteries, and as the years pass and more electric vehicles are put into use, the value of the rare earth minerals in motor vehicle batteries assures that many new vehicles will be built with parts of older batteries. So, regarding the batteries, it isn't all sunshine and rainbows, but there is optimism from people in the know that the battery technology and recycling of the materials used in the batteries will improve and reduce the impact they have on the environment. I'll turn again to Stephen Cohen from Columbia Climate School to assist me in refuting Ike's claims that electric vehicles won't replace diesel or petrol cars. From the same article quoted previously, he writes... Auto manufacturers are investing many billions of dollars in electric vehicles. These vehicles are technologically superior to vehicles powered by internal combustion engines. They need less maintenance and have already proven their attractiveness in the marketplace. It's hard to lie about EVs on social media when your neighbour has one parked in her driveway. When economies of scale are reached and the prices come down, we will have every reason to believe electric vehicles will drive gasoline-powered vehicles from the market. The data indicates that this year will be a pivotal year for the growth of electric vehicles. According to a recent New York Times report by Jack Ewing and Neil E. Burdett, sales of cars powered solely by batteries surged in the United States, Europe and China last year, while deliveries of fossil fuel vehicles were stagnant. Battery-powered cars are having a breakthrough moment and will enter the mainstream this year as automakers begin selling electric versions of one of America's favourite vehicle types, pickup trucks. While electric vehicles still account for a small slice of the market, nearly 9% of the new cars sold last year worldwide were electric, up from 2.5% in 2019, according to the International Energy Agency, their rapid growth could make 2022 the year when the march of battery-powered cars becomes unstoppable, erasing any doubt that the internal combustion engine is lurching towards obsolescence. The focus on electric pickup trucks in the United States is a brilliant strategy for automakers. Displacement of old technologies by new ones can be accelerated when the new technology can do things that the old ones can't. 
In marketing the new pickups, auto companies have featured their extra storage space and shown them powering a home during a blackout. Just as video cassettes were replaced by DVDs and DVDs were replaced by streaming video, once adoption of a new technology begins, it can easily become unstoppable. While electric vehicles are not an environmental perfection, they are an environmental improvement. Anyway, Ike rants on for a few more minutes with objections to electric vehicles. You get the point by this stage, and none of it is really worth sharing, save this tidbit. You can't have petrol and diesel autonomous cars run by a computer. You have to do it in an electrical system. So everything's kind of electrical. That's why they're bringing electric cars, not to save the planet. The idea is to move stepping stone from electric cars you drive to electric cars that are driven for you. And this um, (coughs) will, even for those that um, are not of the elite of the elite, but have enough money to buy an electric car, this will limit where they can go. If you've got a petrol or diesel car, you get in it and you drive where you want to go. But if the computer is um, programmed that it won't go to certain areas, well, you're not going there unless you bloody walk. Um, Because... um, it won't take you there. That's the idea. The whole thing is about um, uh, control. Unless you're bloody walking, you're not going there. The automated cars are coming and they aren't going to want to drive anywhere. Also, apparently Ike thinks you can't automate a petrol or diesel car, which is pretty funny. Uh, anyway, I found Ike's electric vehicle rhetoric to be pretty tiresome after listening to it so many times for the sake of this podcast. I do sincerely wonder what changed for Ike that his opinions about the environment changed so radically. I imagine he's as susceptible to misinformation as any of us are, so did he just fall prey to climate change denialism talking points? Or does his paranoia and scepticism of authority and expertise run so deep that he just won't believe anything the quote-unquote mainstream tells him for fear of an agenda? Remember, Ike's opinion of academics and scientists is low. To Ike, scientists and academics have passed through the system, learned what the cult wants them to know, and now serve the cult by disseminating the cult-approved narrative to the public in order to control perceptions and thereby control the populace. I think it's lucky we have a record of what Ike thought about the environment and climate change before he went full-blown conspiracy theorist. Ike's book, It Doesn't Have to Be This Way, can serve as a true north for us as we chart our way through Ike land. We don't have to agree with all of the proposals in the book, but at least we know they were arrived at through sound reasoning as solutions for problems which exist in our consensus reality. It provides a fascinating insight into how deep down the rabbit hole Ike has dug himself as well. The book is actually quite well written and very persuasive in parts. If it didn't mean putting more money in Ike's pocket, I would recommend that you actually read it, but if you can find a copy of it somewhere, it's worth a look. The tyranny and the control of electric vehicles in the 15-minute city are a threat to be sure. But next time we open the kimono and Ike lets us in on what's really going on. In the closing quarter of the interview, Ike unveils the plan of the cult. It's a plan so devilish it could be the plot of a film. A very popular film starring Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne. Ike has to give us the red pill first, though. Thank you for listening to the second part of my coverage of Ike's interview with Baptiste Pape. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at ikelandpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, carbon dioxide is the gas of life. Good night.